following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. And joining me this morning is Gary Byrne. Gary is uh, New York, a New York Times bestselling author and former Secret Service officer. In their groundbreaking New York Times bestseller, uh, well, I'll say it because we are on internet radio, so I can, Fuck Feelings veteran psychiatrist and APA distinguished fellow Michael Bennett, MD, and his comedy writing daughter Sarah Bennett, offered practical solutions for dealing with life's problems in a funny, straightforward, and a very unself-help-like book. Now, they're bringing back their patented blunt and hilarious advice to talk about love and relationships in Fuck Love. The Bennetts are featured on CBS this morning. Fox News, Huntington Post, New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sarah. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. Okay. So you wrote this book with your father, which I thought was interesting. I have a lot of or many guests who, uh, couples who write, you know, partners, marriage partners, et cetera, but not father and daughter writing a book I think is somewhat unique. Um, yes, uh, and, uh, we have been mistaken for a married couple a couple times on the radio, and it is never not weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously, you get along because this is the second book that you've written. So, and I know it's uh, not that it, it is. It's difficult to sit down and obviously write a book with somebody, but you guys must have a really good relationship. Well, I'm making that assumption, right? I know, you know, my, I have a very close family overall, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the emphasis, uh, you know, from the time I was little on sense of humor. Uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that we can work well on these sorts of books because so much of his approach to problem solving involves being realistic about what um, the issue you have and kind of developing a sense of humor about it. That's where the titles come in. Um, you know, he would, when well, patients come in, he sort of, eventually or as quickly as he can after feeling out the room uh, to, you know, use the parlance of a stand-up comedian, but uh, to see whether they're up for his approach and if they come in with what they think is the answer to their, their problem, which probably isn't the answer and what they want to achieve is impossible. Um, that's when he can bust out expletives and make fun of them or make fun of himself a little by saying, you know, you're wrong and I'm right and I know because I went to Harvard. Um, it usually, by making them laugh about whatever the problem is, he, it sort of shakes them out of the rut that they've been in and the way they've been thinking about it uh, and gets them thinking more realistically about it so they can actually do something about managing it, even if they can't totally solve it. Well, that's unique, or at least I find it unique. I mean, like you said, your dad went to Harvard undergraduate medical school. You're the one who's the comedy writer, but usually 
and, and, you know, I know this is a generalization, but usually your physician, even your psychiatrist, doesn't always have a sense of humor. At least I haven't found that in my experiences. So uh, <laughs> that's unique, and that's a good thing, and obviously allowed you guys to write this book. So the first book was, you, you know, you're writing, a, I don't, I don't, is it a sequel, would you say, or not? Or it's just, it, it, it came out of the other book, I would assume, which was very successful. So... Let's talk about fuck love, one shrink sensible advice for finding a lasting relationship. We're all trying to, most people are trying to find lasting relationships, but we don't seem to be able to nail it down. At least not the people that I know, whether professionally or friends or whatever. So what are we doing wrong? Why can't we seem to find good partners? Well, you know, every chapter of this book it takes on one thing that we think is very common in online profiles or, you know, personal ads in terms of I'm looking for someone with a sense of humor who's good looking, who I spark with, you know, who has charisma. Um, and we break down the things that you should look for in those qualities. They aren't all inherently good. They aren't all inherently bad. But they have positive and negative effects, and you need to examine them. And that's because usually when people meet someone new or and they get swept up in those new fuzzy feelings that you can get for someone, they forget to be more critical. They forget to stick to a real checklist and be smart about their decisions because they're so swept away by good feelings. Um, so it, this book is in part, you know, it's not so much a sequel, but it is going into this problem because, you know, this, we felt this deserved more than one chapter in a giant book it needed several chapters in its own book. But that's usually why that people forget their own experience when they meet someone new um, and they're interested in them. They forget what they're really looking for, which is they're not looking for um, someone who's going to make them feel good because if you're with someone for 40 years, there's no way you're going to feel good for 40 solid years unless you're also on some very heavy medication. You need to find someone who's going to be there for you when you don't feel good, um, who's going to support you. Um, who's not going to lose interest when you age. Um, and that's also what makes it so easy to write with my dad if this was a book about romance and, you know, sexy times. Uh, I would not be able to do it. I have a low threshold for being uncomfortable. I would have left and I'd still probably be taking a very hot shower. And this is about being your own matchmaker, about looking as a romantic partner, like a business partner, especially if you really want to get married and raise a family. Because that's essentially, you know, family incorporated. That's the business you're going to be running, hopefully with someone else, with this person. Uh, so this book helps people to uh, enter into that process of finding a partner and take out the distracting emotion. We're not saying that you should pair off with someone you have no fuzzy feelings for, but you should not let the fuzzy feelings distract you from the important qualifications that experience and thought has taught you that you need from someone if you're going to be with them for the long haul. Well, would you say that that when I think about, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the word business partners, like you would look for somebody in the same way you would look for a business partner. You don't necessarily have to be attracted to them. Um, although you do have to have some kind of a chemistry. You can't be repelled by them. Uh, what about I was thinking about arranged marriages. I mean, I, I just got back from India, and there's still arranged marriages that, I mean, it's very common. Are those the kinds of things that you're going to be looking for? Because those are supposed to last a long time, and apparently they do. Uh, yeah. And, it, you know, some of the other, it, it, well, I guess the other reasons you gave for why people uh, end up with somebody that 
you know, they don't last because just being attracted to somebody or having, you know, these great euphoric feelings don't last for 40 years. You have to be more practical. So I guess the question might Am I asking, would it be similar to that? Like, these are the kinds of things we need to, and we, what are those characteristics we need to look for in a relationship's going to last? Like an arranged marriage, for instance. You know, because we've, we've been asked about arranged marriages, um, it, like Q&As when we've done a couple of readings for the book. And, um, well, we obviously don't advocate, you know, selling your 12-year-old <laughs> to marry a 60-year-old because that's what arranged marriage means in some countries. Um, that it's, it is successful in part um, when it's obviously between two consenting, not children. <laughs> and uh, it's in a small community that is either based in, in religion or not, but where everyone sort of sh- shares similar values and goals. You know, even uh, I live mostly in New York within the religious Jewish community. Um, it's people, when they get married, they share this religious doctrine, which imbues them with certain values and the goals of raising large families. And so a lot of those arranged marriages uh, are successful because they start off with those assumed shared beliefs. Uh, when you are looking for a partner and you, you know, you're not particularly religious, your marriage is not arranged, but you are looking for someone who shares your values and beliefs because that can Uh, make it easier to trust them to do the right thing and give you confidence that they will be there for you even when things are rough because they'll put good values first. And by good values, I mean that they um, aren't people that flake out about money or if they do, if they're not good with money, they're perfectly comfortable with handing over the reins of the money to you if you're better with it, that they want to have kids if you want to have kids and that parenting is important to them and they're good at prioritizing so they'll put parenting above other distracting tasks or if they flake out and screw up that they'll want to you know fix their habits and get help prioritizing the important stuff um, so that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about and ideally is the kind of stuff that is shared in marriages that are <laughs> Uh, I guess as they'd say in India, not a love match. Um, yeah. So it's not, we're just not saying you should pair off with someone for completely practical reasons and not be attracted to them at all because it's never a good idea to be with someone because you feel like you should. You end up resenting them, resenting yourself, really hurting them, and it's always, a, it's usually, I'll say, a disaster. But we're just saying that you should look for uh, character qualities that go beyond the stuff that really makes you feel excited when you first meet someone. Because when you're with someone for a long time, good feelings fade. You know, part of my father's whole theory is when people come to him, um, you know, as patients initially and say, I just want to be happy. That's a wish. That's not a goal. Because your happiness is not within your control all of the time. You know, you can wake up in the morning saying, today... I'm going to be a happy person and take one step out of the house and you put your foot directly in a pile of dog poop. Now you're not going to be happy, but that was just bad luck. Someone let their dog use your lawn as a toilet. That wasn't your fault. But now you might feel responsible for ruining your own day, which is not fair to you. And it's not a positive way of going about things. It's not going to yield good results in the long run. So, in the course of a married life, there are so many things you can't control that potentially can go wrong. If somebody gets sick, um, you know, somebody loses a job, 
a hurricane touches down and you lose your house. It's important then to look at what someone's character holds, whether they deal with crisis well, um, whether they, like I said, can prioritize the things that you both think would be important, like family and finances and uh, time together, so that you know when the bad times come, you have a better chance of getting through them. Let's start from the beginning then. We just, we're, we're at the age where we're looking for a partner, a long-term partner. Where do we start? How do we know, and I think you cover this in the book, how do we know we're ready for a long-term relationship, uh, albeit you know, just a partner for a long period of time, but, or getting married? What? Well, that's actually, it touches on um, something that, again, like we've done a few events and talked to people that if you want to get married uh, because you're just terrified of being alone or because all your friends are doing it, that's not a good reason to get married. And in fact, it's hard to find a good partner when one of your motivations is just needing someone, period, because you don't want to be by yourself. If you, you know, the sort of morbid saying that I've always had is the only company you're guaranteed to have for the rest of your life is you. It's good to learn to be okay being alone, to, you know, enjoy your own company because it protects you in part from seeking out people to be with that are not good company, that are not good for you, that are not reliable. So we asked readers in the beginning to think not just whether you want to get married for the right reasons, but whether if you're okay being alone, because if you are, there's nothing wrong with that. Marriage isn't necessarily for everyone. Um, and, you know, in doing readings, women in their 60s and, and 50s and 70s have come up to us and said, you know, like I, I'm good, on good terms with my ex-husband. I have a great network of friends, and I'm perfectly happy by myself, but I always feel weird about it, like I should be looking for someone. And if you think about it, and marriage isn't for you, and you're totally happy and fulfilled being by yourself, and you think you're living up to your own ideals of being a good person, being by yourself, and you're a good friend, and you have good friends, that works too. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but so in other really, words, don't feel pressured by other people, whether family, friends, pressured to you have to have some long-term relationship or you have to get married. You first exactly. Be don't be afraid yeah. of being by yourself. Being by yourself shouldn't be a death sentence. Um, it can be you know, financially more trying, <laughs> And, you know, if you're looking at it, the nuts and bolts of it. But if you enjoy being by yourself, if you still find that you are living up to the kind of life that you want in a million other ways and are a good person, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Um, It's your life and you're enjoying it. And that's a perfectly valuable arrangement to, you know, in the short term and the long term. All right. So let's say you are comfortable with yourself, but given that, now you feel like you're ready to have a long-term relationship. What are the right reasons for starting to look for a partner? Um, well, if you are, you think that you could find someone who, or you've met someone certainly who you uh, do better with than you do by yourself. Uh, if you want to have kids and you don't want to raise them by yourself. Um, if you just feel like, you are ready to share finances and responsibilities and, you know, the, the ins and outs of your life with another person. You don't just want to have a casual relationship anymore. You want something that is going to, uh, that will last for the long haul. Um, that's when you can start 
taking this search more seriously, sort of becoming your own corporate headhunter. Um, you know, again, a woman in a reading asked, uh, you know, said, I'm in my late 30s and I am, I, I, when do I make it clear to prospective dates that I meet online that I'm looking for something serious? And uh, our answer was, as soon as you want to. Don't worry about spooking this guy because um, if he does get spooked, that, that's good because you won't be wasting your time. You know what you want specifically. Um, a lot of times, men who also want those things, uh, they, they won't be weirded out. You know, my, my own parents, they were in their early 30s when they met in the 1970s, which to me is like the early 40s of today. Um, and within a couple of weeks, they had sort of, you know, talked about it and said, yeah, um, this, we want this to lead to marriage. So they moved in very quickly and got married very quickly. And it wasn't just because they really liked each other. It was because they shared the same ideals and goals. They wanted marriage. They wanted kids. They didn't really want to wait. They both had the same sense of humor. Uh, my mom saw that my father, despite having some absent-minded professor qualities, was very intelligent and responsible with money. And, you know, he had an elderly dog who he was good at taking care of. So she saw that he had some nurturing qualities. And they went on, I think, a long trip very early in their relationship. And nothing tests the relationship. Like, you know, we always say shared food poisoning, going on a long trip in a hot car without air conditioning. Um, and they got through that. And they saw that they worked well together and were married very quickly. Um, so if you know, if you realize, um, I don't want to just date for fun. This isn't very fun. This is getting boring. And I've been hurt enough times that I know what to avoid. So I'll be hurt in the future. Then you can sit down and get serious about it and not have, don't feel like you have to hide that to prospective partners. You know, if they are really spooked, then they're not ready. And it's good that you learn that early before wasting your time in theirs. Well, one of the chapters you have, Five Ways to Prevent Yourself from Getting Worn Out by Internet Dating. Because now, I think, it, I mean, we're talking about your parents, but that wasn't Internet dating, at least initially. You know, it's it was in real time and you're face-to-face. So the Internet dating... It seems to me very different, and I'm going just, it's anecdotal, my friends, they do get worn out by the internet dating, and, and it, it doesn't, and, it, and it's constant, and you can, you know, attract a lot of different people, but it, in, in general, it doesn't seem to work out. So can we talk more about that, like really specifically what, I mean, I know in the book you have very specific examples of what you're supposed to do, which I found interesting. Um, number one, and I really like write up a job description for the position of your life partner, actually put it in writing, which I think is a great idea because it makes you think about it. What do I really want? And then you're able to actually, you know, when you're with somebody, you're able to, <laughs> to really, you know, take a look at your list. You have a checklist and um, be very specific, you know, with that person about what you want. So um, that's a great idea. You know, especially if you're someone who falls for the same loser over and over again. Over and over um, again, yeah. Yeah, it's it's also helpful if you give that list or a list of traits that you that the loser has. You know, if you keep falling for the same guy who's kind of dangerous and that's appealing, but, you know, he doesn't even have a place to live. He's been crashing on couches and he seems to care more about um, drinking than anything else. Um, 
write up that list and give it to your friends and say, uh, if I am dating a guy and he has any of these qualities or if you've made up a, good, a list of good qualities, if he possesses none of these qualities, I am giving you permission to let me know um, because I become totally blind to all of these things when I'm in the, thro- the early throes of a relationship. And if you are that friend, it's not, and you see that she's with a loser again, it's not going up to her and saying, you're screwing up again. It's saying, I love you very much. You asked me to do this for you. I don't know what this guy is like. He might be very good to you right now, but I am seeing that he has um, items two, three, and nine on the list you made for me, and I would like you to just pay attention to that and think a little more clearly about him. You know, there's a business... And then on the other side of it, you're... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, just that instead of becoming emotional about it as a friend or taking it personally as, you know, the person who's trying to avoid heartbreak again. It's the business-like approach of headhunting, having a second opinion, um, especially when you keep falling for negative qualities instead of looking for the positive ones. Well, it's like you said, it's like a business partner. Uh, you have certain things that, that qualify them for the job, and you've got a list and you're usually very clear if you're going to go into business with somebody, uh, you know, what those qualities are that you want. So this is kind of, as you say, this is the same thing. But then the other thing, let's talk about this. You should list your assets that you offer. And I don't think people do that very often. And that's kind of sort of a unique suggestion. Write down your qualifications. What do you have to offer? And be very clear about that. Um, so when you do that, then how does that fit into the internet dating situation? Um, well, also, you know, it, I agree. I think people don't list their own qualities. It's sort of, you know, the, he's not that into you approach. You should be really thinking, am I that into him? What does he have to offer me? And what do I have to offer that I, because if I have a lot to offer, why am I waiting around for someone who's wishy-washy and not making it clear whether they like me or not? Um, so, you know, we, but what's interesting to me is that in going over and writing this book, my dad has to sort of connect it to advice he's given in the past. And the majority of the cases of the patients he has that come to him with romance-related issues are people that are getting divorced, usually for problems that have been there the whole time, that they either... Um, were blind to or willfully ignored or thought that they could somehow magically fix, but just can't. Or there are people that are really burned out, usually women, really burned out with online dating <laughs> who have just gotten so frustrated. And it's the key to avoiding that burnout, and we talk about this, you know, like you said in the book, is being so clear about what you want, being so clear about what you offer, and not um, exhausting yourself by giving someone a chance if they have some good qualities, but either you're not, you don't feel that much chemistry with them or they have some bad qualities that are pretty obvious too and you want to know if the good qualities will outweigh the really bad ones because, you know, they seem so great in so many other ways. Don't, don't waste your time. Don't give someone a chance for three or four months when you could instead be finding someone better. Um, you're, you're, especially if you're trying to convince yourself. It's never a good idea to really try and convince yourself um, if it's taking a very long time. Don't force yourself to date someone you have no chemistry with. Don't try and find the ways that a partner is good that will outweigh 
more obvious ways they're really not good. Um, I'll give yourself permission to be selective um, and don't worry about being mean. You know, if you are polite and have these clear goals, then it's not being cruel that people will understand, uh, especially if you say, you know, I'm looking for something serious and I, you don't have X, Y, or Z. If they're freaked out, then you did them a favor. Um, if they're not freaked out, then they're on their own search and they'll get it. But women especially worry about hurting other people at their own and sacrifice their own goals and their own well-being in order to do that. And you can't let yourself do that. You have to keep your eyes on your goals so you do not get burned out very quickly. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I have several girlfriends who will sort of fit that category that you're talking about and afraid to hurt someone's feelings. And I, I my advice was, and or some of my advice is, you know, you didn't know this person two days ago. Why are you so concerned about how he or she feel? you know, how he feels now? I mean, like, this is somebody who's not been in your life. And yet there that that especially with this online dating, um, somebody you have no idea who they were or where they came from, and now you're concerned about you're going to hurt their feelings if you do, well, as what you described, if you're, um, so. Yeah, I mean, you don't you. have to, I, I think, uh, believe the kids say, ghost someone. <laughs> you don't have to just sort of drop off the face of the earth. You can say, you know, we had fun, but I'm looking for something really serious. I just not, you know, I don't feel the right connection, but, you know, um, I really liked hanging out with you, and I wish you the best. And if you know you're doing the right thing, and even if they kind of flip out, you don't have to respond and you don't have to feel guilty. You know, so much of what my father preaches is that if you are confronted with um, a conflict, you know, if, uh, if your spouse says, I worry that you're drinking too much, um, if you have your own suspicion that you're not spending enough time with the kids, or if you are annoyed at your spouse for not spending enough time with the kids. The key is encouraging the other person to examine or examining for yourself whether the behavior that you're worried about or you've been accused of fits in with your values or not. You know, you think if you're accused of drinking too much, you think, is my drinking affecting my ability to do my job? Is it making me less... Uh, you know, is it taking away time that I would, should be spending or would want to be spending with my wife and my kids? Um, uh, is it making me delinquent in my duties, not just as a father, but as a son, as uh, a brother? And if you think about that and you realize, yes, drinking is making those things hard or it's putting my family at risk, then it is your responsibility to manage it. But it's if you think hard about it and you realize no, I think my wife is just being, you know, overly cautious because I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I am fulfilling all these duties that are important to me. Then you can say to your wife, you know, I have thought about it and I, I don't feel that my drinking is getting in the way of the things that are important to me and important to us. And um, I will always be mindful of it and I certainly appreciate your concern, but I I don't see it as a problem. And then you, you don't have to feel guilty. You thought about it. You're not reacting out of guilt. And you don't have to have the argument again because you have given it full consideration. When you do a full assessment, there's no reason to feel guilty or defensive. And so if you do a full assessment of a possible partner you met online and they don't meet your requirements, they don't, you don't think they complement the, the attributes that you bring to a relationship, you don't have to feel guilty about shutting it down. You just have to be polite and walk away. Mm -hmm. Great advice. 
and actually we've reached the end of our half hour and we've only touched on a few things obviously there's a lot more in your book uh so and i'm it's it is a very practical guide we've talked as i said we've talked about some of that today but on how to build and maintain lasting and i guess the word is lasting romantic relationships so I've been talking to Sarah Bennett, the New York Times bestselling author and sketch comedy writer, and she is the author of Fuck Love, One Shrink's Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship. So, Sarah, um, since we have to say goodbye, would you give us a website or websites that we can go to for more information about you, what you're doing, and your book? Oh, sure. Um, well, the book is available everywhere. And if, like me, you live in a small town where they will not carry a book with a title like ours, they will lovingly order it for you, I'm sure. Um, that's what my New Hampshire bookstore did. Um, our website is fxckfeelings.com. And uh, my dad and I are um, social media inept. I've always said that uh, I would be better anti-social media. But we uh, are all over social media, thanks to the help of a millennial we hired to help us. So we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're all over the place. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me this morning is Gary Byrne. Gary is uh, New York, a New York Times bestselling author and former Secret Service officer. 
Airport security has been at the top of political conversation from safety after the Fort Lauderdale shooting to immigration and protests. Federal Air Marshal, Secret Service Officer, New York Times bestselling author of Crisis of Character is going to discuss airport security today and the very real threats that domestic lone wolves pose. Gary has served in the U.S. Air Force Security Police and in the Uniform Division of the Secret Service, where he protected President Bill Clinton and the first family in the White House. He's been featured on Political, Fox News, and the New York Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Gary. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. Okay. So you obviously you have the credentials to talk about this and airport security, I think, is foremost in a lot of our minds because it seems that there's uh, I travel all the time. So it's always a concern for me. So like, where do you want to start with this? Because airport security, uh, I guess, has constantly been a a problem ever since we began doing this since after 9-11. And apparently uh, there are always I don't know what you would call it, loopholes or places where people, um, you know, screw up and we have major problems, disasters, et cetera. So where do you want to start with airport security? What do we need to do? How can we be secure? So the first thing we have to realize is we have to to kind of draw a line. The the trick to securing an airport um, is to secure it from all avenues of approach. And you can only go so far because we're talking about public access. And you don't want to make an airport um, appear so secure or so hard to get into or any more harder to get into than what what we've had to do. And you also don't want it to look like, you know, basically like a military base. So you're you're looking for somewhere in between that. One of the things we could do is is, um, we need to – we need to spread out our security at the airport. We have a lot of armed police officers, which we need, uh, uniformed officers on the departure side, but not the arrival side in some airports. So we need to spread out the uniformed police officers on both sides, both uh, departures and and the baggage side arrivals. Um, So people see these armed police officers and know that uh, there's somebody there looking out for them. So in other words, you need, they need to be visible. Is that yeah, it? they need, need to be to, visible. Yeah. And we also have to get away from this mentality of people's or the, the, the politically correct perception of people being afraid of or intimidated by police officers with long guns, semi-automatic rifles or submachine guns. These weapons are needed by police officers to deter a large attack. And, and just, just to, and I know all your listeners out there aren't, aren't, um, aren't particularly pro-gun or, 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 or anti-gun, but, but, you know, everybody has their own opinion, but one of the things you have to realize is, you know, when, a, when something bad happens in this country, whether it be at an airport or a train station, one of the first things you see is, is we usually bring in the National Guard or the local SWAT team with long guns. So we need to get used to that. We need to have them, you know, departments need to stop being afraid to give their patrol officers at airports submachine guns. Because they need these. Is that in, true? In Arthur, I want to stop you because I didn't know that they were afraid to do that. I mean, I am, and, and it's, I've always felt, I mean, I'm not, I don't necessarily want, I don't want my next door neighbor to have an automatic machine gun, but I do want the police and the border patrol and as you're describing it, the, the officers at the airport to have them. I mean, that, yeah, that's I'm who not, should it, have it them. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be an automatic weapon. It can be a semi-automatic weapon, but they usually are a sub-gun 
um, is usually um, has the ability. The, the definition of a submachine gun is a is a, a rifle that fires handgun ammunition and has the ability to go from safe to one round per trigger pull to multiple rounds per trigger pull. That's the definition, the basic definition of a sub gun. Um, now, the ideal that um, people do get intimidated, you know, when they see people walking around, all of a sudden they see them, and, and, and this is the, and I'm telling you from my experiences when I talk to my supervisors, you know, people high up in the air marshal uh, service, and even in the secret service at times when I was there, they'd say, oh, people are intimidated by it. It's something you should get used to because when something goes wrong, you want these people to have the right tools. You know, you don't you don't run out on the beach to save somebody's life carrying a lawnmower. You bring a life jacket and a float board. You need to have the right tools, you know, for the job. All right. So you're talking about, are we talking about like, what, what about secure, they talk about securing the perimeter, like even before you actually get into the airport. Um, yeah, and I, so, I was telling my last, I just want to, I was telling my last guest, I, I was in India for three weeks and their airports, they are right beside Pakistan and, uh, their airport security is very different. I mean, you can't get into the airport without being questioned or your driver being questioned. Uh, and that's, you know, as I say, that's on the perimeter of the airport. And then by the time you go through all of the checkpoints, you've gone through at least three checkpoints before you actually get on the airplane. Yeah. Um, what you're describing is actually what I've seen in, in other countries also. That It's similar to that in Israel. The issue is, is that there's so many airports in the United States. We have hundreds and hundreds of international airports. Um, just in the, the state of Florida, I think there's 13 international airports. So then you get into the issue of manpower. It, it's expensive to secure, you know, hundreds and hundreds of airports in that fashion. So I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. I'm just saying it's, in some cases, they'll tell you it's cost prohibitive. And then it, it's intimidating. It's not, it's not the normal procedure you see here in the United States. Do I think we're headed that way? In some cases, I do. Um, I, know, I know at times I've been to the, the airport out in Los Angeles, LAX, and they have police officers temporarily stationed checking every, you know, talking to every driver that's coming into the airport area. Um, it's not like that all the time, but I have seen it in, in elevated cases. So I suppose if it's random, that's okay, too, because you're not going to actually know when they're going to be there, which no, I would assume. absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. We used to do random checks at the Philadelphia airport. Um, as a matter of fact, a group of air marshals uh, from time to time would assist the local Philadelphia Police Department in doing this. And, um, you know, we do, just do a random, every third car starting now, you know, um, and um, or every, seven, you know, 13th car because the, of the traffic flow. And we pull them over and, and uh, you know, just say good morning to them, see how they react. You know, you look in the car, you see a man, a woman, and three kids, you know, and they're wearing Mickey Mouse ears, it pretty much tells you what they're doing. Um, you see four business people with, you know, grim looks on their face and, uh, and data sheets on their lap or on the computer. You know, you're, you're just looking for normal behavior and you ask a couple questions, look for ID, and you let them get on your way. You make your judgment and you let them get on your way. What about TSA? I mean, I'm not criticizing, um, but I'm just, I guess maybe I'm critiquing. I find, particularly in the United States, and as I said, I travel a lot, uh, they're a little 
lackadaisical. I mean, in, in some of our big airports, including New York City, where, I mean, they're talking with each other and joking and laughing, and I find that kind of unsettling. Like, you know, you really should be very serious and a little bit formidable. I, I see it changing a little bit, but talk to us about that, because I think we need yeah. to be a little bit... I have seen the same thing you're describing at some airports. Um, here's the, my issue with TSA is... Uh, I think it's necessary, but the problem with TSA, like a lot of government agencies, they're too heavy in management and supervision. And although you need supervision at the checkpoints that we're talking about, but they have so many layers and levels of management and supervision above that, Um, and and it becomes cumbersome. You can't get anything done smoothly, and and a lot seems to get lost in communications. Um, Security at the airport, the one of the other issues with TSA is, is they're, they're not armed. They're screeners. And at one time, the initial plan after 9-11 was to make all the screeners actually police officers. But that got squashed because it, it, was, it would have been one of the largest you know, police forces in the country. Um, and it would have cost a lot more money. So I, I don't, you know, and they augment it by having some armed police officers, you know, from the local municipality or the state police there. Um, it's something to look at. Um, you can never, in my opinion, you can almost never have too much. The, the issue is you need to make sure there's that you also have some on the baggage side or the, the, uh, ar- the departure side or arrival side. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of other countries, and I was in Cuba, I think it was 2003, and, I mean, when we got off the plane in Havana, and this was very intimidating and I thought it worked quite well, uh, you're suddenly, not only are the officers there with guns, but the dogs are there. And, and that, that, you know, I guess they're sniffing for um, Right. Uh, so weapons. the one thing you have to realize is, is, and I know you know this, but I'll, I'll just say it um, for the sake of saying it, is, you know, we're a free country, and, and the American population is only going to tolerate so much um under normal circumstances. Now, we do use canines uh, for bomb sniffing, and these dogs are trained in a way that they're, um, they're, they're pretty much user-friendly as far as um, being around other people. But, um, you know, just a warning to everybody out there listening that when you do see a police dog or a walking dog, please don't approach it to pet it like it's a pet unless you talk to the handler. Um, but with that said... You know, dogs that would not be my problem. I don't think I would approach the dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, I say that because I, um, my years years ago when I was in the Secret Service, the Secret Service uses a lot of dogs, and they, they purposely make sure the dogs are socialized because um, in, in, in past years, for instance, President Reagan was famous for walking over and petting the dogs. So you want the dogs to be socialized. What we're talking about is using them in airports. It's a little bit different. Um but in some cases, they're used for intimidation factor. Um, that's not why we use them. We use them because they can uh, sniff out uh, explosives, and we also use them to augment the human police officers. So um, a little bit different. What about now? You are a federal air marshal. So what what does that entail? What and, and do we so, have federal so after, after um, we were attacked on 9-11, I felt my skills, um, my gunfighting skills and my hand-to-hand skills were going to be used by the Federal Air Marshal Service. So I transferred from the Secret Service Uniform Division to the Federal Air Marshal Service. I was there for 13 years, and, 
And in that 13 years, I flew over 4 million air miles, and um, which is one of the reasons I retired at age 53. <laughs> so, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, as an air marshal, you basically we're talking about police officers on airplanes. They're um, they're they're playing we're playing closed. We try to blend in. Um, we don't cover every flight. We cover flights that that we've learned to uh, that are issues. These are large planes going long distances. Um, and um, it, it works very well. It's another layer of security. Uh, it, it has, you know, the, the Air Marshal Service, like, a lot, like most federal agencies, they have some issues that need to be addressed. But the mission is important, and 90%, you know, 99% of the people that are Air Marshals are excellent human beings. But, Garrett, what do you do in terms of, like, say, oh, I, I don't know if there's one or two of you, let's say, on a long flight, uh, like, say, the flight so I took from 16-hour flight? Yeah. Yeah. What I can tell you is, um, is basically what's been released publicly years ago is we work in teams of two, sometimes in multiple teams of two. And let's say a flight is leaving Philadelphia to Manchester, England, and there may be, you know, a couple teams of air marshals on there because the flight is going long distances with large amounts of fuel. And there may be other reasons. Um, and these air marshals, they come on with the, with, the, um, uh, with the passengers. The crew knows they're there, usually. The crew does know they're there. And uh, they blend in with everybody. And they basically sit and wait for something to happen, and then they react. And they train very hard uh, at these skills. They're hand-fighting uh, combat skills, their gun skills, their negotiation skills and common sense things. Um, it's a tough job. Um, it's a lot of boredom with, um, with um, you know, sometimes a little bit of excitement in there. Hopefully not too much excitement. So can you give us a scenario? Like, not a, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a real one that you've experienced. No, actually, but, I can so, give you a real scenario. And, um, okay. And a matter of fact, uh, about 10 years ago, roughly, I was flying to, uh, with, with a, a, uh, I'll say, you know, at least four air marshals. We're on a flight to Manchester, England. And um, just before we, we boarded the flight, well, I was talking to a gate agent, and the gate agent mentioned to me about these the group of men that have, were in the airport that had been drawing attention to themselves, doing odd things. And the first thing she was, did is she described them as they appeared to be Middle Eastern. So it turned out that every step of the way that these gentlemen, when they arrived at the airport, when they got out at the, at the curbside, they were drawing attention to themselves with their behavior, goofing around, um, making comments about airplanes and the flight deck. And, and then when they got to the to get their tickets, they, um, they approached some pilots and wanted to know if they could get on the flight deck. And they were kind of goofing around, but they were drawing attention to themselves. By the time we got on the plane... Everybody in the airport, the Philadelphia Police Department, TSA, everybody had known about these people, had heard about these guys. When they got on our plane, um, they started approaching the, the pilot and, and, a, and a flight attendant. They wanted to see the flight deck. They were trying to act jovial. So uh, myself and my team leader got up. Um, we talked to the crew. Um, I talked to the pilot myself. Um, I told him I thought at this point I needed to intervene. I did. I went to the area of the plane. The plane was being boarded. Still, people were still getting on. And I walked up to these guys, to the one guy who looked like the leader, and I said, um, you know, I need to see some ID. And he said, who are you? And I said, well, who would ask you for ID? And, you know, we got, them, we got this guy off the plane. We got all their passports. So here's, 
to make a long story short, we I ran the, the names. I called the headquarters in Washington. They checked. They knew these people were in the country because they had done the same thing coming into the country on their way to Las Vegas. So they were, you know, they were purposely drawing attention to themselves. Do I think they were doing it to, to feel us out? Possibly. But I do know it went way up the chain of command. British intelligence was, uh, was notified when we landed, and uh, it went on from there. So that's just one example of one of the things that I experienced while I was there. Well, you were in it, what, 12 or 13 years. You, yeah, you must have had a lot of different uh, ex- experiences. Years. No, you're not too, it wasn't too crazy. I mean, we had things from time to time. Um, you know, anytime the threat level went up, uh, of course, you know, the tensions went up for us. Um, but, um, you know, I was glad to have the opportunity to do that job. And um, and now it's over. And, and I retired and life goes on. So, uh, yeah, there are many examples, um, and I talk about some of them in my book, uh, Crisis of Character. I describe the story of when we did the, um, we, we brought uh, refugees, or basically Americans, from, uh, that were, were in uh, Israel and Lebanon during the um, Israel-Lebanon uh, uh, war about uh, seven, eight years ago when the Israelis and, and the, um, the PLL uh, Palestinians started uh, slugging it out in Israel. And uh, these people got got stranded. They were basically on Cyprus, and we helped fly them home. And, and I talk about it in my book uh, in detail. What can we do as lay people? You know, when you're in an airport or, you know, they will say, to you know, if you see something, say something. Right. Uh, you know, at what and at what point do you think you see something and you should say something, or uh, you know, where where what what do we do as as sure. I say as, as just question. lay people? Excellent question. Here's the first. My advice to people when they talk about traveling is: is before you leave your house, you know, make sure you don't have anything in your bags that are going to slow you down. Make sure you have your pen knives out, or if you're somebody who has a concealed carry permit, that you don't accidentally have any firearms or ammunition in your bags. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it happens all the time. And then, um, you know, proceed to the airport. Have your tickets, all the, or if you're using it on your, uh, if you're doing your, an electronic ticket on your phone, make sure it works. You know, try to smooth things out as much as possible. Answer their questions when you get to the checkpoint if they talk to you. Um, keep your eyes open. Like you said, uh, and this is an excellent uh, question you had for me. You know, see something, say something. You can go, I'll give you a good example of it. Um, one time when uh, some, some teammates of mine were in the Philadelphia airport, they were sitting there and they were watching this gentleman. He had two cell phones, and he kept switching chips out of the phones back and forth and he was talking on one phone he was talking in spanish on the other phone he was talking with what appeared what sounded like arabic it drew enough attention from people where you know my two co-workers that were air marshals that were you know in plain clothes um went over and started talking to the guy and it actually turned out to be something um and, and it wasn't there they didn't see it at first it was just a regular passenger who pointed it out to um a gate agent, and the gate agent pointed it out to the to the air marshals when they came up. So it, it does work. And, um, you know, uh, when you're at the airport, pay attention. Um, try, try to be a good passenger. You know, do what the, what, the, um, what the employees tell you to do. And when you're on the plane, be a good passenger. You know, um, uh, listen to the uh, what the crew tells you to do. And, um, you know, I flew 4 million air miles in 13 years. And the most dangerous thing that ever happened to me was 
was basically riding the shuttle bus from the airport to the gate. So um, I have no issues with flying, and, and um, that's you know that was my experience. Well, it's interesting because I had a, a Navy SEAL on the show a couple of weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer, and one of the things which goes along with what you're saying was, and I hadn't thought about this, was that when you, let's say, in the situation at the airport uh, or even in any other public situation, I ride the subway a lot, it would be like be aware of your surroundings, and most of us right, aren't. Right. We get into the airport, we're on our cell phones, we are not aware of our surroundings, uh, and yeah. you know, I'm generalizing, so that you really should... Be cautious, you know, when you and 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 that's one way of doing it. To to no, you're absolutely be aware. Right. Of, and, yeah, yeah, your 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 guest is right, of course. And 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 just to add to that, you know, I, when I tell people, I say, you know, don't make yourself paranoid or crazy. But here's a good example: if you arrive at the Fort Lauderdale Airport or the Miami Airport in August, and you see somebody walking along with a long raincoat on or trench coat, and it's 95 degrees. That's something to take a look at. You know, that's that's and that's an actual a real life example of something we experienced years ago when I worked at the White House. So, um, you know, when you see something that's out of the ordinary and it catches your attention, you know, take a look at it. Um, everybody today, we see people today. Everybody has electronic devices. We have cell phones. We have earphones. You know, our iPods. We have all kinds of electronic devices. If you see something that looks odd, you know, maybe point it out. Um, there's, there's, uh, was an instance just an instance just a couple of years ago where somebody saw this person putting together wires in a metal case with batteries, and of course, you know, when it was pointed out to law enforcement, they, uh, you know, they were talking to this person, and the assumption was some kind of device, and it was a device, but it wasn't anything dangerous. What this guy did was he was an electrical engineer. He made his own battery backup for his iPod. And, but he did it with crude, you know, rudimentary, an old um, metal case that came from some kind of candy and some wires. And, and But when you see that at the airport, you know, it looks suspicious. So that's the kind of, you know, it turned out to be okay. But if you see something like that, yes, you should say something. Gary, what about how many, and I don't know if you can give the statistics, like, because you've been doing this or have been doing it before you retired for a long time, how many incidences would you say that you thwarted either on, let's say, on the air as an air marshal? Or well, I say I would say I would tell you that um, the air marshal service, because people know we're out there, and um, I'd say we do thwart. Um, how many? I don't know. Do, do we change people's minds? I will tell you this: that uh, I know for a fact that we've changed people's minds of doing bad um, behavioral things on the plane, you know, where people get drunk or intoxicated or, or might actually uh, abuse a flight attendant. And because the air marshals were on there, they backed off. And uh, I had uh, quite a few times when I was flying where, you know, typically you don't get involved in these things, but when the flight attendants are being verbally abused to the point where it looks like it's going to get physical, you, you know, you kind of have to draw a line there. And um, But as far as air marshals, you know, the fact that they know we're out there, they don't know where we are, they don't know how many we are, and they never will. Um, we're out there, men and women, they're on these planes, and they're doing the best they can, and um, they're doing a good job. And I do think we are a huge deterrence. 
well, doing a great service, and it was uh, especially a pleasure to talk to you today about this. Uh, I just I'll mention your book again, Crisis of Character, New York Times bestselling author and former Secret Service officer Gary Byrne. Uh, thanks for sharing all this information. Very practical, and for all of us who fly all the time, um, I'm going to keep all of this. I know I will <laughs> keep all of that advice in mind. Um, I'm Catherine Zox. Yeah, thanks, Gary. You're a social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 